And thanks to Cryo Malt, this is Radio Brews News back at you after a very long delay. As ever, I'm joined uh, by my good friend, colleague, co-host and all-round good beer guy, Pete Mitchum. Pete, welcome back. G'day, Matt. G'day, uh, listeners. And uh, thanks to David Cryer and Cryo Malt for their support, without whom none of this would be possible. Mmm, Cryer. That's good malt. <laughs> could, that, could that be a tagline or something like that? Or? As a matter of fact, I'm eating some now, or brewing with some. Yeah. No, but yeah, no. D- Dave Cry's a good, uh, a good guy. Uh, jumped on board. We might, we might need to work on that. We, we will, and uh, we, we do have, ladies and gentlemen. You might have noticed that we are being the grubby creatures of commerce that we are. We do have some sponsors for Brews News, which is what's managed to bring us back and hopefully improve what we do and uh, make it more regular, as we have long promised. But also add a few little bits and pieces like transcripts and uh, more professional editing. So uh, big thanks to to Cry Malt, and we're actually not plugging Cry Malt today. Um, we're plugging. Uh, Beervana, which uh, David Cryer is um, in, in, integral to, integral to. Um, Beervana running Friday 22nd to and Saturday 23rd of August 2014 over in Wellington, New Zealand. Great, one of the best beer festivals I've ever been to. Small enough to see everything, big enough to satisfy your every desire. Pete, you haven't been across, have you? I haven't, no. Hint, hint. <laughs> well, no, well, last year neither of us did because it, it did coincide with Beer, uh, with uh, the Echo. The, the Brisbane Exhibition. So we were kind of uh, tied up last year. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and the year before I had something else on, I can't remember what. And the year before that I wasn't invited and nobody offered to pay for it. Uh, no, so no, I haven't been over. Not, not that that's the only reason you would go. It's certainly worth... Of course worth, not. And, and being the spectacular event that it is, it's certainly worth paying your own way, uh, listeners. Of course. Um, and particularly with the New Zealand peso giving you a great exchange rate, you'll certainly, your dollar will be buying much better than it would be if you're going to, to America. Um, but no, it, all, all kidding aside, Beervan is a fantastic craft beer event. New Zealand is a powerhouse of craft brewing, as is Australia, but slightly different take on a lot of the beers. You get to try them fresh. You get to meet the brewers. There's a lot to be said for that. Um, and, you know, just quietly, I know that uh, Steve uh, Jeffers, who has one of Australia's, possibly Australia's best uh, craft beer festival, uh, the Great Australian Beer Spectac- Spectacular, um, was over there getting some ideas. So there's a lot of similarity between the two events. They're very different events. But if you like uh, Gabs, you'd certainly uh, find it's worth going over to Bivana. So... Now, that ad out of the way, those bills paid. Prof, um, how have you been? It has been a long, long time since we've spoken. We do have a, uh, a, a trial run episode that's going to come out um, in between. This is a special edition, but this is our first full-on edition. So how you been? So does that mean we're doing auditions now as well as editions? We're doing a special one-off, is it? Is oh, it was, it was a demo. We were just getting, you know, it'd been a long time out of the saddle. We were making sure we still uh, knew our way around the, the, the recording studio. We had an interview uh, that had been lying around for a while that we just put a bit of intro into. So I think it was done a little while ago because we've got an editor these days, uh, Ben Hetherington. Welcome on board, Ben. Uh, love your work. And uh, yeah, so we just did a little teaser just to make sure we we're back in. Didn't quite get it out before we did this episode. So uh, yeah, we'll just call it bonus content. But how you been, Pete? Yeah, not too bad at all. Not too bad. Yeah, very busy and... Um uh, doing a lot of writing and obviously putting to bed uh, just uh, as of last Friday the fourth edition of the Critics' Choice. If I can throw in just a quick shameless plug um, for that, uh, mainly because it's a labour of love. Um, 
But yeah, 40 of Australia's wisest and most respected ear critics have uh, cast their votes yet again. Uh, I can't say too much because, you know, I might slip up and uh, because obviously I've, I've just had to proofread the whole book, so without memorising you, all... You might tell us that Hop Hog uh, was number one beer and Stone and Wood was number two, two again. again. Yeah, just why not? Just We'll just throw that in and just see what happens. <laughs> if it did happen, and who's to say it won't because it has happened twice already, um, the critics each year are different. It's, uh, it's not like it's the same uh, book being written by the same people each time. So uh, wherever those beers finish is testament to their, I guess, their... Uh, probably, and look, we'll probably touch on this a little bit later when we, we, we come to our uh, soapbox topic. Um, but there's, there's something to be said for a national distribution. There's something to be said for beers that just, for whatever reason, capture the imagination and the, the attention of, of, of a broad range of drinkers. Whereas there are other beers that I guess come and go, whether it's by um, the fact that they're under the limited release or by the fact that, yeah, I have it every now and then, but it's a bit expensive or I have it every now and then, but it's a bit big or it's a special occasion or what have you. Um, I think there's a lot to be said for you know, the beers that have featured in the in the top half of the, the Critics' Choice for the, for the past four years um, seem to have a, you know, just a certain something about them. Yeah, look, mate, spot on. I think both the, between the Critics' Choice and the Hottest 100, um, I, well, both of which I guess you and I are both um, involved in, um, in in some way. We don't run either of them, but we are critics or you know, promote um, the Hottest 100. But yeah. both of them have a, a really valuable role to play in terms of throwing up beers that uh, people may not have thir- heard of. And before you start knocking it, you know, and you know, listeners, I-, I know that there's a lot you know, around the Hottest 100 time, around Critics' Choice time, there's a lot of, oh gee, how did that make it in? And I guess it happens at the uh, Australian International Beer Awards or um, we've just had the World Beer Cup in the States where... Uh, uh, Tui's... Tui's Extra Dry, well done. Tui's Extra Dry. One a bronze. Um, Cascade uh, got one for their um, bright ale. Um, I think their bright ale, their, their wheat beer. I uh, know they yeah they blonde is the uh, blonde blonde is a wheat beer. Yeah, and you know it, it's easy to say oh shit you know how did how did they get a, a medal? But you've got to look at the context that the awards being in 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 amongst all of the beers of that category, they were the standout beers. Um, and so you can't knock it. They weren't being judged against Feral Hop Hog. They weren't being judged against Rogue, uh, or, uh, you know, Rogue Beer or Stone Arrogant Bastard. They were being judged against beers of the same category, and they fit in. And then, you know, it was the same with the Critics' Choice. Uh, as you said, national distribution. There are a whole lot of beers that uh, people might have tried that were literally, you know, brewed one or two kegs of. Um, they're never going to feature in a Hottest 100 or the Critics' Choice unless all 40 of the critics managed to uh, be there in the one time to try it. And that's just unlikely. So look at it as a discussion starter, as a uh, snapshot of the year in beer. It's a guide. Yeah, exactly. But it, it, it's not the definitive Hottest 100. Um, it's not the definitive uh, best beers in Australia. It's a critic's choice um, and put it within that context. But they're very important. And, you know, I've, I've got the last, what, three versions sitting on my uh, desk and I still flick through as a reference every now and then just to, rem- to remember where it placed and, and how it went and, uh, you know, they're important uh, books. So well done, Prof. Um, looking forward to, to reading this year's. Yeah, no, it'll be good. Um, what else? Uh, just while we're, we're plugging stuff, uh, Good Beer Week is just, uh, what, six weeks away? It's imminent. It's Im- it is imminent. And uh, you and I are doing our all singing, all dancing uh, celebration of beer advertising uh, on the Monday night, um, the Bruin Transfer. 
the Bruin Transfer at the uh, in the Tower Theatre at the um, the Malthouse, the Cooper's Malthouse Theatre down there in uh, South Melbourne. Um, it's a, a fairly intimate kind of um, extravaganza, I guess. It's, it's sort of it's 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 large on a very small scale. So yeah, there'll be a, just going through the, the, the scripting and, and selecting the uh, ads and that sort of thing. For those who, who don't know about it, I mean, it, look, some have mentioned, uh, pointed out that it perhaps bears a, a very vague passing resemblance to um, another show of, of a similar name that looks at you know, advertising and, uh, and kind of, you know, crawls up under the skirt and, um, you know, uh, peels back the covers and, and looks at what's beneath you know, the world of advertising. Uh, but this is just about beer, so it's completely different. I've been describing it as a riff on the, the Gruen transfer theme, uh, riff being a nice way of shortening rip-off uh, into four letters. Exactly, um, an homage. It's a homage. It's, it's that's, a homage. That's how we'll get around it. Yeah. So th- think uh, Gruen transfer, uh, Gruen transfer, but about beer. And uh, I guess the thing that makes the Gruen transfer so successful is the panel. Um, and we couldn't have ripped off the Gruen transfer without ripping off at least one of their uh, panel members. Scoot. And we've got we've done it. We have. We've got Adam Ferrier, who is a consumer psychologist and expert in all things and highly entertaining uh, uh, observer of all things advertising. He's a great, very excited to have Adam on board, who's going to be uh, dissecting ads. The other one, and when we sat down to work out our list of who we really, really wanted, um, we were thinking of someone who works for advertising for a brewery, but not necessarily one of the, the big advertisers or one of the big, you know, someone who was willing to say something interesting. Now, we've managed to get John Baker, who not many people have heard of, but he's with KWP, which is the advertising agency that has done Coopers for a long, long time. So they're behind the cloudy but fine um, ads and really, um, even Coopers, when you speak to Tim Cooper, he pays a lot of credit to KWP in getting Cooper's brand front and centre and uh, kicking off the success that they're still enjoying today. And uh, John is, I believe, the managing director of KWP, but he describes himself as uh, he's a board member, shareholder and strategist. He loves all things military, karaoke, and hates the middle ground. Um, So he's probably perfect for something that Australian Brews News is putting on. Hates the middle ground. Hates the middle ground. I'm presuming that means he uh, he's not a fence sitter, so he'll hopefully come out punching and. Uh, that sounds perfect. Tell us what he really thinks. The uh, panel is going to be rounded off with uh, Jamie Cook uh, from uh, Stone and Wood, um, who's had a long uh, background with uh, Fosters, so he's seen inside the uh, the big house. He's also worked with uh, Dig uh, Marketing, so he's worked in the in the, in the serv- consumer servicing side, and now, of course, he's uh, worked with work. He's a co-owner of Stone and Wood, um, and has been instrumental in building their very very strong brand. And also worked a bit at Forex. Uh, I keep forgetting that. Yes, he did. So uh, yeah, no. So uh, it, it's great to have Jamie on, and uh, then of course there's little old me down the end. So they're the people who know what they're talking about. There's me uh, down the end, uh, just you know throwing marbles um, or in pulling the girl's hair every now and then. And uh, the whole thing's going to be uh, uh, what uh, goat herded by you, Prof. Yeah, I'm going to try to. I'm going to sit in the middle and pretend that I can, um, you know, herd these cats. Because I think it's going to be, uh, I think it's going to be interesting discussion uh, to and fro and uh, off on tangent. But uh, it's going to look lavish um, in terms of you know the set, the lighting, the uh, obviously the you know, the videos, which is very important. And I'll try and uh, yeah sit in the middle and um, uh, kind of 
try to keep the conversation to time, I think. But it's a look, it's a Monday night. It's the you know the, to kick off Good Beer Week. If you want to start off with something that's not just about shredding your palate with massive hot bombs and uh, barrel aged imperial stouts, uh, but to perhaps just sit and enjoy a couple of quiet beers while you have a bit of a a giggle and uh, a bit of exercise for your brain, then uh, the Bruin transfer. There you go. And that, that, that's a great, you know, apart from being highly entertaining of its own uh, right, we're not trying to blast anyone's minds with the uh, craziest beer. So it's a good way to ease into good beer week or, you know, give your liver a rest while still being in and around the, uh, the, the beer industry. And so, so Prof, uh, so that's a Bruin transfer. What else has been happening? Uh, I read an interesting article on a, a, very, uh, a very good site called Australian Brews News. Um, something that beer's image with your byline under it. Uh, it had been a long time since I'd been on my soapbox. I think I'd been keeping a fairly low profile, but uh, yeah, I did see something come out. Look, listeners, go and read it. Um, it, it it's there. It's had a very, very interesting response. Um, I have to say, um, yeah, as these things always do, a lot of the most interesting discussion takes place by emails by uh, that, that start with um, "Don't quote me on this," but. Um, but yeah, no, I've had some phone calls from uh, fairly significant people within the industry who have wanted to have a chat about it, and uh, yeah, no, it was one of those things. Like, it's one of the uh, most, uh, you know, the, the least contentious um, soapboxes I think I've ever done. It uh, has had a lot of people agreeing. Um, you know, th- th- there are obviously uh, problems um, with beer marketing, and that a lot of the, the market do find those ads appealing um and i guess the long my point was that the long term uh we need to look at where we want beer to be in the future and stop harking back to the past with beer advertising it's not going to happen overnight and if the uh, brewers association is serious um then you know, i really applaud them and uh you know they they can start doing that but as the the Han ads that I re- or the um, James Squire ads that I, I uh, referenced, um, you know they're, they're not even doing the simple things right um, in terms of changing beer culture. So, you know, before they start getting up and getting all preachy about it, maybe they should uh, tidy up their own backyard. Anyway, that's the uh, yeah. So so that was the, the article. I'm I'm looking at doing another one um, that may be a little bit more contentious and uh, not deliberately so, but it's just a uh, as always what I uh, what I think or what I've been musing on and. That's looking at how maybe uh, craft brewers are doing a lot to undermine what the definition of craft is at the moment. Um, you know, with some of the some of the beers that they're putting out and some of the uh, strategies that they're following, um, might be uh, you know closing the gap between mainstream and inverted commas craft beer. Um, just, and sorry, just hang on a second, Matt. Just sorry, yep. no, I'm good now. I'm just um, I'm just putting you know I've got one of those um, uh, beekeepers outfits. I'm just yeah. If this is going where I think it's going, I, I might just need to protect myself a little bit and uh, oh, stirring the as, you, as, as you poke the uh, hive with a stick. Okay, yeah. Well, yeah, but it's not. A, I don't actually see it as doing. It's just it, it's raising issues and discussing them. And no, uh, you know, sure. here is a conversation, and uh, you know, there's never any malice or anything about it. But you know, it, it's been an idea that I've been kicking around for a while, but. The, the thing that's really uh, triggered it was I got a media release last week uh, from the Australian brewery that, you know, the, the first brewery in Australia to can. And, you know, good luck to them. They seem to be doing quite well. I think that their cans look like uh, energy drinks or, you know, RTDs. Um, but they've just come out and brought out a... Mind you, that said, that the, the beers are tasting pretty good, the ones I've tried. Um, the can look may be deliberate. They may, you know... I know, I know there are restrictions with the because um, people have commented on the, I guess the drabness of the the look of the of the product from a marketing perspective, um, and I don't know whether it's true, but I, I do believe uh, that the 
the printing is limited to uh, two colours and a certain range of colours or something like that. And that's why they've gone with, with what they had. But, uh, oh, absolutely. They're, they're, they're a technical. And, and, and that wasn't actually – I just sort of been watching it and the, the beer styles they've been putting out. And they've just come out with a beer that is called uh, Mexican Lager inspired by the hot, dry plains of Mexico, um, you know, that they – Boasted it's 25% maize, which is corn, ladies and gentlemen, if you didn't know. Um, just like a, a certain imported uh, Mexican beer. Um, they've given it a lemony tang through the use of hops. But it, but it's still, you know... Uh, anyway, I'll, I'll, I'll save it for the thing. You know, when, when you're making craft beers to, to look like mainstream beers, you're actually killing the point of difference with craft um, because in the consumer's eye um, there is no difference between craft and craft was always about having flavor as a point of difference having ownership as a point of difference having process as a point of difference traditional traditional styles yeah traditional styles and to uh, to bring out the ultra light light flavored beers it's a good business decision i'm not criticizing it and it's not even i'm not even saying it's a bad beer but in terms of perception for marketing uh, in the consumer's mind, when you blur the distinction between mainstream and craft, you're actually killing craft because craft is always going to be more expensive. If they think they can get the same thing cheaper, you're killing your own market. Anyway, I'll, uh, I'll put those thoughts into a, you know, my usual five or 6,000 uh, words, um, footnoted, and uh, see where we go. But, Prof, that, that, that's, that's enough of us. Um, Today we've got a, uh, a great interview, Peter McLaughlin, who is the head of marketing for SAB Miller's uh, CUB in Australia. Um, as regular listeners will know, uh, we've had a, over the last 12 or 18 months, we've had a fairly fraught relationship with CUB. Um, some of the things I've written have uh, ruffled a few feathers, upset a few people, and uh, they stopped inviting us to their to their tea parties. No, no, to be fair, they, they just became more choiceful about who they did invite. Well, apparently the choiceful people have moved on. Um, it, it, it's, it's interesting how many... By, by choice? Well, I don't know, but you, know, you, see, you, see, you tend to see in marketing circles when people move on to a bigger role, you tend to see it you know, in ad week and all of those things, they're celebrating their new role. Seem to have been a lot of people who have moved on from uh, CUB without much fanfare, so I'm not sure what that means. Not commenting. Uh, there were certainly no uh, laps of honour, no farewell phone calls to uh, you and I. But anyway, the, the end result is that uh, the people who are running the show seem to be willing to have a open and frank dialogue. And uh, I managed to catch up with Peter McLaughlin late last year. Um, and had a very long and frank chat about a whole range of things uh, that have occurred in CUB since SAB Miller took over. Um, and, in, you know, in, in the spirit of Glasnost um, you know, and the thawing of uh, tensions, I was out the other night and tried uh, Crown Lager on tap, the new Crown Lager, and it was a pretty good beer, actually, Prof. For, for, what it, for, for the beer that it's uh, trying to be, it was doing it very well, I thought. So, uh, you know, all props to them, um, both for the, the way that they're approaching their, their market and uh, the, the way that they're lifting the, the, the quality of their beer, which is some of the things that we talk about in this interview. Before we do, though, ladies and gentlemen, having teased you with the, uh, um, how CUB are going to open their kimono, uh, we've just got one more quick little ad to do, and that is for um, Brewpack, which is have come on to help us out as well. Um, Brewpack, now contract brewing is demonised in some circles, as we've written in the past. We're not, we, we have no problem with contract brewing, do we, Prof? Not at all. That's all you're going to say? You're going to leave that hanging? Oh, sorry. No, I didn't, have, I 
it's not a, it's not in my script. It's as soon as you say that for contract growing, they're all bastards. No, that's all great. <laughs> Mate, we, we, no, ladies and gentlemen, we don't actually use a script for these things. Um, we only uh, take on the people that we can actually uh, riff about honestly. So Brewpack, Brewing Packaging Simplified. If you want to get your beer idea to market or expand your existing one, go see the guys at Brewpack making some very good beers for some very good brewers. I just made up that uh, little tagline. Hopefully they like it. Um, given that they're going to be paying us for it. Anyway, Prof, without any further ado, let's get on and uh, have a chat to Peter McLaughlin, or Pod, as he's affectionately known. And yes, now I'm joined by Peter McLaughlin, Director of Marketing for CUB. Peter, welcome to Radio Brews News. Great, thanks. Great to be here. Congratulations on the on the new job. You've uh, only taken it over this year. Yes, I have, Matt. Yeah, I've been uh, I've been with uh, SAB Miller for 23 years in, in various different roles, including marketing in the South African business, um, but only with CUB since the acquisition. So really exciting to be part of this organisation. But you're with uh, Pacific Beverages uh, for a period before the takeover of uh, CUB, before yeah. SAB Miller's takeover of uh, Foster's? Yes, I did. I came from our uh, business unit in Latin America, based out of Bogota in Colombia. I looked after sales and distribution for that business unit, which there we were a $1 billion profit unit and came into a, a reasonably small JV in, in the Australian environment with Coca-Cola Amital where you know, we were effectively a startup organisation, you know, a handful of employees and, and fighting for a space of, uh, uh, of the premium sector at that time in, in this market. We really had two ambitions. One was an organic growth ambition and the other obviously we'd always had our eye on, on acquisition uh, into this market and, and CUB was always a, a target of that acquisition. And Joe, for those listening at home, they can probably tell that you're not a local. Um, whereabouts are you from originally? Born and bred in Zimbabwe, uh, or Rhodesia, Salisbury, Rhodesia in those days became Zimbabwe. I did all my schooling there and then went down to South Africa, did university in, in Durban in South Africa in Cape Town and uh, spent most of my working life in, in the South African business. And the SAB and SAB Miller is South African breweries obviously, you've been with the company for a long time. Tell us a little bit about that, the, the, the complex um, agglomeration process that saw you uh, grow into a, an international brewing concern. Yeah, it's been a fascinating journey to be honest, you know, I mean uh, I started in, in, in 1991 with the organisation um, and I remember I remember our chief executive, Graham Mackay, who was CEO until still is CEO, has some health issues at the moment. But, but Graham said to us in one of those early days, days mid-90s, he said to us, I'm going to help set a vision for this organisation. I want to be amongst the top five brewing businesses in the world um, by any measure. And at the time, we just thought, you know, you smoke your socks. We were a tiny brewer in, in the southern tip of Africa, and here you're talking about global aspirations and being in the top five by any measure. And true to his word, you know, he led the organisation to be able to do that. And This was uh, not long after Australians such as Alan Bond um, had charged at the world and built big breweries, uh, largely funded by debt, and that all came crashing down. What's been the difference with uh, SAB Miller's approach? It's a really interesting point. I mean, Graham always said, and I think rightly so, that we had a brand-led approach as opposed to a... Sorry, a people-led approach as opposed to a brand-led approach. And I think uh, largely the success was uh, was sending uh, preachers out with the Bible, if you like, to go out and, 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 and spread the word and, and carry what we considered to be best practice into largely emerging markets to start uh, to start off with. And that was a little bit of a cookie-cutter approach. We found as we went into markets like Eastern Europe, which were part of our early markets, is that the, the formula, if you like, was reasonably simple. We had to get production right. The production quality wasn't right. We had to get that right. We then had to get sales and distribution right. So you get 
the, pro- the product out into the market and then sort of layer marketing on top of that to create demand. So it was a fairly systematic approach. And in fact, what we've done subsequently is codify that approach. We've got seven what we call ways. So we've got a manufacturing way, we've got a talent way, we've got a, a marketing way. And those are codified practices now which travel with the people. They never travel sort of uh, one without the other. Mm-hmm. We like to try and do both the personality of the organization infused into the countries we go into and, and the, the codified practices as well. But we're in 75 uh, countries now over the six different continents. And, and by and large, if you travel around to a lot of the countries which I've done, the culture is reasonably similar, which is fascinating. So. so give us a sample of some of the breweries that you've owned in that process of uh, getting bigger. You, you own breweries through Central Europe. You own, um, you've got partnerships in the United States. Uh, yeah. So if you break it down over the six different continents, um, Africa has always been, uh, you know, as Mayor Khan, our ex-chairman, used to say, is, is, the, you know, is the real roots of the business. We grew up in Africa, so we own... Um, we're in 29 different countries in Africa, some directly and some through our joint venture with the Castile Group, which is a French brewing group. Um, and we sort of have a very good working relationship with cross-shareholding in our businesses. Um, and they largely do Francophone Africa and we do, do uh, Anglo-Africa. Um, our first foray outside largely, I mean, there were some small ones, but our first foray was really into to Eastern Europe, into Hungary. And uh, I think we sort of, because Hungary is very competitive and there's sort of the three big brewers in Hungary hold a third share each, we, we really found what it was like to compete. Um, and, you know, Hungary, for those that know the market, is actually a very competitive market. And we sort of expanded outside of there to where we own uh, eight different businesses within, within Europe. Um, both the old Eastern Europe, but also we've got businesses like the Italian business that brought Peroni to the table. Um, so we've got both sides of the fence there. At the same sort of time, we, we ventured into uh, India and China fairly early days. Um, we are now the, the biggest brewer in China through our joint venture with uh, CRE, China mm-hmm. Resource Enterprises there. Uh, and we're about a 20 share, uh, 20 share of that Chinese market. And again, that's been um, it's been an interesting journey. It's been choosing the right partner, uh, certainly, and it's been being able to catch that whole wave as the Chinese market sort of became uh, more more modernised, if you like, and, and converted as a as a as a country. We've been able to capitalise on that. India, we got in reasonably early, so we're second biggest brewer in India. Uh, our venture into uh, Central America was before our venture into South America. We went into South America in 2008 uh, with an acquisition of four countries there uh, under Bavaria, headquartered out of Bogota, Colombia. Added uh, another two, the Central American countries came into that business, then we added uh, Argentina more recently. And then, of course, the USA acquisition in 2006 was, was the Miller business. Uh, 2005 I think it was and we then subsequently JV'd with cause so a 11 share player and a 9 share player to give us a, a little bit more scale as a as a second tier challenger to Anheuser Busch which is 50% of the market so and that's recently created a fairly interesting uh, I guess conundrum because you were partnered with Coca-Cola Amatil in Australia before the Foster's purchase or the CUB purchase They've been out of the market since, but they're about to re-enter with Cause, who is your North American joint venture partner. So 
is it fair to say that you're going to be competing against yourself in in, in some respects or some of the beers that uh, you market jointly in America? Yeah, the American JV was always set up with a ring fence around it. So there, it was it was intended when the deal was done, and, and it's been a very good partnership for both parties. They've managed to extract synergies and grow volume, capitalise on the craft uh, uh, revolution in, in, in the US and all sorts of things. But it was exactly that. It was ring fence to the US. So... Um, there are other places in the world, for example, if you take uh, in the UK, they actually own Grolsch as a brand in the UK. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, they obviously market and, and we compete in the UK market and, and that's what's going to happen in the Australian market as well. So the intent was, um, the intent is still positive. I mean, we're kind of distant cousins, I guess, in a way. And, and, and yes, uh, we think they've got uh, great brands and we will always look at them as an opportunity but it's not inconceivable to end up in a situation like what we have done here. Okay um, so I guess the end result uh, was 12 months ago you took the keys to CUB in Australia. Um, it's been a fairly big year we've uh, seen apologies we've seen uh, restructures we've seen uh, brands what what have been the highlights or what, what has been the strategy uh, over the first 12 months uh, in CUB? Yeah, I, look, I mean, I think at, at the core of that, and, and probably one of the most exciting things with the CUB business itself, the folks in CUB are just very relieved, I think, to be back into brewing. And at the end of the day, the organisation lost its way a little bit in terms of, you know, do we make wine? Do we, you know, do we distribute spirits? Are we, you know, we are we brewers? And and I think SAB is in that sense, SAB Miller is in that sense quite a simple company. It's it's about beer. It's about beer passion. It's about quality of beer. And it's about quality of brands. You know, and mm-hmm. and and the CUB organisations responded beautifully to that. So. One of the big things I think initially was setting up the organisational culture that goes behind that, which includes, you know, development, understanding of brands, understanding of beer, um, understanding why it's important in, in in our consumers' lives, and and all of those different aspects was was a was quite a, quite a change in a lot of different ways for the CUB business, I think, or, or change back to what it used to be. Perhaps mm-hmm. is, is a more accurate way of saying it. The second thing I think what we've what we've managed to do is to bring in some manufacturing principles. I think it'd be fair to say that the quality had slipped on a number of different counts. Mm-hmm. And again, if you come back to the earlier statement around the manufacturing way, there are brewing standards that have been honed across those 75 different businesses um, uh, by a central technical team and are applied across all of our businesses. And it, and it helps eliminate bad brewing practice. You know, It helps get rid of additives and preservatives. It helps uh, get rid of reclaimed beer, for argument's sake. It helps get rid of uh, or standardise on, on times fermentation times and storage mm-hmm. times and those different elements and and slowly but surely it, it cranks up the quality of and the consistency of your product which is really important to us uh, from a quality perspective. I might just uh, jump in there because uh, that, that brings in something that I was going to get to a little bit later and I, I guess the, the biggest example and one of the things that uh, has led to a little bit of friction between uh, me and the company over the last uh, two years is um, Crown Lager for example which uh, I don't think I've ever had a go at the beer itself, but there have been some uh, marketing um, around it that I have had a few issues with. And uh, it's interesting to hear you talk about some of the brewing practices probably weren't the best. Um, is that you know a polite way of saying that maybe uh, Foster, that Crown wasn't Australia's finest lager for, for a long period there? 
Well, you know, I mean, what we prefer to say, I think, in Crown's particular case, is we, we prefer to say we dusted it off. You know, it's always been a very good, it's always been a very good liquid, and it's been perhaps a little bit, uh, you know, unfairly treated or would be thrown into that same bucket unfairly. Um, Crown wasn't a major revamp for us, whereas we did a lot of work with the VB recipe. Mm-hmm. You know, Crown wasn't a major revamp for us. Uh, but it would be fair to say that we did tighten up on quite a few aspects of it. We, we also, you know, I mean, I think at the end of the day, uh, as, as we, we chatted before the interview, Matt, I think at the end of the day, the, the, the quality of the beer and, and, and what the beer is has got to be at the very heart of it. You know, before you put any marketing story about it around it, you know, before you put any packaging around it, the most important thing is the liquid itself. And one of the observations I made when we first started is I, I was chatting to the brewers trying to get to know the CUB brands. And when I asked about Colton Dry, they were, they were very quick to tell me what made Colton Dry special. Mm-hmm. When we chatted about Crown, for argument's sake, the packaging came ahead of the liquid, you know, while it was it was packaging that was done for this particular event or packaging that's iconic in the mm-hmm. in the environment. And I think you've got to start with a beer. I think at the heart of a successful brand has got to be the beer and the liquid itself, which is why in Crown's case, uh, we really drove to understand that intrinsic appeal and we drove to get the, you know, to make sure that it had the finest hops and the finest barley and, 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 um, and, uh, and yeah. But I, I guess that was the point that I was making is haven't they always claimed to use the finest hops and the finest barley when it was uh, pre-isomerized hop extracts for one and, you know, when you've got a, uh, you know, a highly processed um, ingredient, um, it can be very good quality, but it's certainly... I think the consumer, when they re- when they see flowing fields of barley and hop plants um, and marketing lines that talk about Australia's finest, they expect that it's actually not fundamentally, uh, you know, the, a highly processed good. Um, was you know was the change in in the uh, formulation of Crown you know a a, a quiet way of uh, CB apologising again um, the, the way that they did with Phoebe, or at least backing down from some of the claims that they made. Well, yeah. making good on the claims might be a better way of I putting think, it. I think that's probably the right way to do it, making good on some of the claims. And I think it's a case, you know, in VB's case, you know, there was there were distinct decisions taken as part of the previous management team which were, in our opinion, quality negative and unacceptable for the consumer. In Crown's case, the intent was always there. You know, there was always uh, care taken with the product. There was always a sign-off from a brewmaster. There was always some mm-hmm. of those things. What we really did was dial up the stakes in Crown. You know, we said, at great cost, we said we want the supply chain to be very distinctive so you can follow grain right through to glass in, in mm-hmm. Crown's case. Um, and um, and we, we, I guess, just made absolutely sure that when you stood up and said this is Australia's finest, you could say it had Australia's finest ingredients and that would become your intrinsic underpin. You, you, you made the comment before that uh, VB was a major um, review of the, the, the recipe and the ingredients um, and Crown Lager wasn't. Um, can you explain the, the thinking behind that statement? I mean, Crown has dropped cane sugar entirely, um, which was a... a I don't know exactly how much uh, it was, but it was a substantial part of the the recipe. Um, You've gone to kettle hops rather than pre-isomerized hop extracts. Correct. Um, That's not, you know, looking at it that way, you've actually made far fewer changes to the recipe for VB um, because it still has um, pre-isomerized hop extracts and it still has uh, cane sugar. You've gone back to a, a stronger formulation. Yeah. There are bigger, there really are bigger changes to the liquid in 
Crown Lager than VB, aren't there? So that, those are certainly good observations. The use of cane sugar in beer is not a negative, as you know. No, no, I, I, mean, I wasn't it, suggesting it, it, that. Yeah, I realise you were, but just to qualify that, you mm. know, that's just that depends on what what type of beer you're trying to brew, and mm. obviously, you know, there are. You know, full malt, uh, and there are there are beers that, that use uh, liquid sugars. Um, so for us, that change it wasn't about taking bad out. It was about modifying and making sure that it was right relative to the brand. Whereas some of the practices that were evident in VBR, in our opinion, were unacceptable. Mm-hmm. You know, things like additives and preservatives, the use of, you know, foam st- stabilizers. Certainly, we are big advocates of kettle hopping. You know, mm-hmm. as opposed to to pre-isomerized hops, etc. So some of those things were changes that we felt were were negative um, and therefore less uh, less subtle, if you like. Whereas the other changes are, are are slight modifications and therefore more subtle. If that helps. The other point that I think is very important, which maybe is linking the liquid a little bit back to what the beer stands for. You know, at the end of the day, when you peel everything back, you know, the real beauty of VB is that it's got that real full flavour and bitterness at the temperature that um, you know that Australians love to drink at. Mm-hmm. And of course, we all know that the characteristics die back. Um, substantially of any beer as it gets colder mm. and it's a combination of cold and that full flavour with the, with the unique uh, bitterness that we think gives the consumers what they're looking for. Um, so it was also making sure that the marketing proposition and the liquid itself tied pretty closely. I, I know that we've spoken uh, previously before uh, actually recording this podcast um, on a couple of occasions and we've, we've talked about um, you know something in uh, you've acknowledged it's very important that the marketing is honest, that the marketing gives honesty to, to, to the brand. As a marketer, would you have taken the tact of uh, running, for example, the fifth ingredient is time for a brand like uh, Crown Lake? Well, it, 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 I, mean, I, I hold the view that it wasn't in any sense true, um, and I know that you can make the case, there is cases you can make for it, but do you think it's a mis- that it was a mistake from the brand's perspective to come out with that campaign um, when it might have been more suited to the beer as it stands now. Well, well, I think if we if we establish initially take you know, take the brand out of it and establish time as as whether time is or isn't important to the brewing process, mm-hmm. and you know that you can get uh, you can get brands that spend a lot longer in fermentation, you can get fast fermentation, slow fermentation, get different esters, mm-hmm. get different characteristics coming off the beer. Uh, in in maturation, you can get. Uh, um, a improvement in your in your uh, chill hazes and all those sort of mm-hmm. things by different uh, temperatures and by different lengths of time. So, in, in my humble opinion, yes, time is an element in brewing. You know, and I think uh, any brew master would say that relative times changes change in my recipe at the end of the day mm-hmm. um, and, and there are brands around the world uh, if you take Amstel Lager in South Africa for argument's sake slow brewed extra matured and it is matured for or the process let's say the FESV process is a lot longer and provides certain characteristics into the beer mm-hmm. so as a marketer if you can capitalise and, and grab something like that and capitalise on it and it makes sense in terms of your position of the beer, then I think it's fine to use it. And Pilsner Raquel is one of your brands that, that's marketed very heavily as the time that it spends uh, lagering. Well, correct. I mean, you know, it's a, it, it is a very long process, a 42-day process mm. in to, to total for, for Pilsner Raquel. In Crown's case, um, let me be honest, I, I, I actually push quite hard to get time in because I do think that as I just explained I do think time's relevant although when we looked at the relativity of time it was half a day 
and you know you've got to you've got to stand up and you've got to say you know is this is this genuine if I'm if I'm chatting to a, to a Matt Kirkengard of the world is he going to look at it and say that's you know marketing puffery or is there something really in that and 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 at the end of the day two things persuaded us to go the route we went one was was that was that particular element to say we have to be true uh, we have to market what is what what we fundamentally believe to be true and and the second one was in, in research to be frank the ingredients came out so much stronger than you know time as a fifth element it, it was just far more compelling well I, I guess the actual time time was always one of the things that was mature longer and I, I did have um, issues around that but it was also the the, the fact that I'd always seen that uh, time being the fifth ingredient was like the full stop on the end of the sentence and even when I put it to the then communications manager I said well if time's the fifth ingredient what are the other four ingredients he said well, malt water hops and yeast yeah, well, yeah. where's cane sugar come in yeah oh that's number six and isn't you know it, isn't that um, a, a, you know there's no way, kind of way of saying it, isn't that fundamentally misrepresenting what the brand was? Um, you know, when a lot of beers are marketing themselves as malt, water, hops and yeast, and to say that time is a fifth ingredient isn't the logical or the natural understanding to come from that, that it's malt, water, hops and yeast and time. So yes, you, you've explained that time maybe was relative, but... Uh, it was completely ignoring a whole other ingredient that wasn't there. You're actually very difficult for me to comment, not being around at the time. I mean, your logic stacks up to me. You know? okay. and, uh, so I think the points to be made are ingredients are really important and, and honesty in marketing, you know, it's got to have a very definitive hook that traces back to, to the product and the product quality, no argument. Yeah. And uh, on that, you've shot some beautiful um, commercials at the moment and you, you, you have very much looked at the ingredients and the uh, things which have, have made those ingredients and it's backed up by actually uh, occurring in the kettle. Is it, is it a little bit ironic that the uh, music com- accompanying it is Don't Change, though? There's a classic Australian song called Don't Change. Is there some irony or, you know, some... We haven't actually, because a lot of the marketing communication has not highlighted the actual changes in Crown Lager. Were you painted into a corner? Um, no, the don't change actually came from a, a, a slightly different angle. You know, we were, we were always uh, of the belief, you know, that, that Crown wasn't fundamentally uh, and, and isn't fundamentally broken. Um, but in the research groups, and I sat through, through many of the research groups, um, what we established quite early on was that um, there were two things that came out very strongly. One is that there wasn't a barroom defence for the brand. A lot of Crown drinkers were loyal but not fiercely passionate. Mm-hmm. And when pushed, they said, yeah, I really like this tipple and it's, you know, it's great and I enjoy, I enjoy a crowny, but I don't really know why it's that special. I just, you know, it's just because I've grown up and we always do that for celebrations, etc. So the you know, starting point for us was to say what's special. And the second thing was, um, actually, you know, I like a lot of components of this. Don't fundamentally change anything. You know, whereas, again, if we go back to the VB liquid, you know, a lot of the VB consumers or the ex-consumers, the lapsed consumers would say, hey, you messed with my liquid, therefore I walked away from it. A lot of the crown consumers were saying, you know, don't, uh, don't mess with this. It's, you know, mm-hmm. Don't change. It's not broken. So, again, to make the point, we, we feel we dusted crown off and we were much subtle in terms of our change. And if we thought the change was dramatic, um, we would have we would have made we would have made that statement more clearly. So okay, I, I, yeah. I, I, as I said, I, uh, I'm always fascinated by the world of marketing, but uh, it's uh, yeah. Um, but, yeah the, the, the problem is, you know, when you are that overt and you come out and you say, hey, I've you know I've slightly uh, dusted the recipe off, I've changed it, and whatever you you can you can change consumers' perception. It's like changing bottles. Mm. You know, we've I've done many uh, label changes in my life and haven't so much as touched the liquid. And the consumer's response is, you've changed the liquid. Mm. You know? So the perception that's created. Yes. So there is a little bit of needing to manage perception in the whole process. 
Um, we did do quite a lot of research, taste research, and we knew that we were close. We knew that we had what, what we considered improved the liquid without dramatic, dramatically changing it. So we, we made a conscious point not to, not to talk. We haven't denied it. I'm not denying no. it now. We haven't denied it at all, and that isn't the intent. But the intent is not to get the wrong reaction from it, because by and large, the consumers were saying, I'm very happy with, with you know, I'm happy that you're dusting it off. Mm-hmm. There was no question we got a mandate, we thought, from consumer research to be able to make the change. But having said that, we didn't want the change to be dramatic. Uh, well, it, it's interesting because I guess that's uh, really what I was, um, the, the point that I was trying to make is that, yeah, I, there, there does seem to be a stream of communication that is minimising that change, even though as a layperson or as an outsider watching it, the change seems to be much greater to Crown than uh, there was to VB. But I think you know, we, we've got that um, topic on the ground now, and, and it's well and truly done. Um, tell us a little bit about uh, how VB has gone um, and the, the, the changes you made to VB, the big campaign, the big apology. Um, has We've seen it reclaim its number one position, although I guess that it's... Uh, Dueling quite nicely with Forex Gold as the number one beer. Well, you know, well, look, it's 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 number one by value by you know mm-hmm. a order of magnitude. It's the it's the volume that uh, that you play with between VB because obviously VB is of you know, full strength uh, versus the mid strength from from a Forex perspective. So you know those the the value there's some comparability in terms of that issue. Um, but you know the the holistic the nice thing about VB and it's a really clean and easy story to tell. Um, in fact, we have a global competition called Macartus, which is Global Marketing Awards. And, and in writing up VB, it was actually it was actually one of the easiest stories to write up, which I think makes a good marketing story because it was easy to identify what was wrong. It was easy to identify what what we did to fix that, and it was easy to show the results. You know, and therefore it made a you know compelling five page interesting reading story. But at the end of the day, I think that the big success behind it was was making sure that we lined up all the dots. We got the liquid right. We got the organisation to believe in the brand again. You know, because if your sales folks don't believe in it, you can't expect your customers too. We got the customers behind it. We made a change to the packaging. We went back to what made the brand great. We went back to the core truth behind the brand. We went back to targeting you know, older males, 35, uh, 35 plus um, blue collar males, which was the heartland of the brand. And the interesting thing is in doing that, because the brand wandered for a number of years, as you know, and it tried, to ch- uh, it tried to target younger. Some of our greatest incidents now, incidents, use incidents, are coming from 18 to 24-year-olds mm. because we're, we're, we're targeting back to the heartland of what made the brand great. Um, we're into our fifth uh, period now, fifth quarter of, of growth after a decade of decline. So you know, obviously consumers are voting with their feet, which is very positive. And and we've got some wonderful properties to work with, you know. I mean, VB in terms of you know everything from the sort of state of origin and the and the NRL properties, uh, from the cricket property, which is particularly good at at a time like the Ashes now, is you know it's fantastic. Um, the Razor Glass campaign, where we can, uh, we're the single biggest contrib- contributor to to RSL programs, where you really go back to the core of what makes Australia great, and you know, and and, and very few brands can play that particular role um, in in Australian history and as part of Australian history. So, you know, hopefully, it's one of those brands that you can pick up and you know really associate with being proudly Australian. Having grown up with uh, in the South African business with Castle Lager, and having watched Castle go up and down as big brands do. 
Mm. Um, the, the one thing that always struck me with Castle Lager was as a South African traveling abroad, abroad, you might not have drunk it at home, but when you were abroad, you were only too happy to pick it up and sort of beat your chest a little bit with it and that show of, uh, of national pride. And that is what VB is to, 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 us, to, to Australians, I think. Yeah. And it was, I guess it's a really fascinating marketing case study because uh, I think that the regulars ad campaign was one of the cleverest ad campaigns. It's up there with the big ad and some of the great Australian beer commercials in terms of entertainment and identifying Australian humour and all of those sorts of things, but it really didn't succeed with the brand. And uh, marketing is a bit of a black science, isn't it? You're trying to capture lightning in a bottle and you can have the best ad campaign, but if you if you move away from... Um, what people see as the brand and consumers I guess do have some ownership over the brand that brewers or marketers such as yourself lose control over and if you, there's a disconnect between there you can have the best ad campaign in the world but it's just not going to be effective. But I think that's the difference for me between entertainment versus advertising that really works. You know, There has to be a core truth. There are many many times you'll watch an advert and you say what a great advert um, but what does it say about the brand? You know, what's your? What? How do you remember the brand? What was the the branding capability of the advert, etc.? So you know, there's a there's a huge amount of science, as you as you know, that goes behind all of that work, and 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 some of the work was interesting to watch, but but really didn't hone down. I mean, that particular ad for, for me, I mean, that said, this is the beer for everyone. This is the tasting beer for absolutely everyone. Now, there isn't a brand in the world that can target absolutely everyone successfully. It's just you know, it's it's not possible. And in fact. Um, you know, really strong brands. People hate them for the same re- reason others love them. You know, you just have to be able to to choose and go after what you think suits your brand. But in, in that case, wasn't that the um, ad agency delivering on what their brief was at the time? They did want to I- expand the brand out of its heartland very much and uh, make it the beer for everybody. So how, how, how much was that driven by the business? I, I know you weren't here to really comment on it. but yeah. uh, No, very difficult for me to comment, in, in fairness. Hey, and, but, but let me say, in advance, it's never the fault of the, the agency in isolation or the company in isolation. Mm. I mean, the agency and the company work hand in hand, and you know, we were, we're only as good as each other are. So you know, I, don't, I don't think it's a case of pointing fingers. I think it's a case of learning, learning from the past and making sure we don't make the same mistakes. And it, it's not unusual. You know, what happened is not unusual. You'll find many brands, many countries, many uh, categories that have done the same thing when when your brand is starting not to work there is a inclination to go and you know, try something different and pick on a new consumer group or you know which is exactly what happened with the grant brand but uh, time and time again I think particularly in beer but in many categories history is has shown us that that being true to to what your your core grouping is and your core positioning is fundamentally the most important thing that you can do. Which which I guess leads us nicely to Cascade, which is another brand that you've uh, very recently revamped. Um, And Cascade, under the old old regime, for want of a better term, before SAB Miller took it over, they did dabble uh, four or five years when they moved away from the cool Tasmanian Tiger campaign. They did start looking at their heritage... um, they, they brought out a, an app, The Brewer's Notes, that uh, I'm always a little bit uncomfortable holding up as a great thing because I was involved in doing some copywriting for it, so I've always found it. Oh, wow, well, I didn't yeah, know that. Yeah, so okay. I, I, I wrote a lot I've of I've still, still got that, yeah. Yeah, and, uh, and it was something to me that I always found there was a real disconnect because you, you, you see something there where for a long time, uh, well, for a period of 12 or 18 months, Cascade was really saying that our beers stack up with everybody else's. We have it put out an app that just makes ours one of a number. You know, we want to educate the beer market. Um, and there seemed to be so much good around that. Um, and yet it didn't really 
captivate anybody at the time. Um, and in some ways, I see that what you've done now and going back to the history, the themes that are, are coming out from the marketing lines are very similar to, to what to the story that was being told then. We're going back to basics. We're going back to the essential history of, of the brand. Um, what, what's different now over the, the last incarnation of the you know, Brewed by Feel advertising, for example? Yeah, again, Matt, you must, you must excuse me because my, my, obviously my knowledge of some of the history mm-hmm. is a little bit patchy, so I, uh, I'm not sure I can comment specifically on, on the variations. Okay. Uh, I simply don't have the knowledge. But, you know, again, the Cascade story is, is no more complicated, in my opinion. You know, Cascade, uh, it's really built on people, provenance, and products. You know, we think that uh, if you go back to, and we can talk about uh, 24 versus 1832, mm-hmm. but, I mean, if you go back to when Cascade was the inception of Cascade, at the end of the day, you know, Peter de Graves, as the founder brewer, wanted to make a, a beer that was excelled within the colony. He wanted to make great beer. You know, I mean, that's at the heart of what he did. And he wanted to make it out of Tasmanian products um, you know, wherever possible. And he wanted to make it out of the, the richness. And we've used the tagline brewed on the edge, edge of the world, which is not dissimilar to some of what you're seeing from Bogues, because we think that some of the qualities uh, around Tasmanian, Tasmanian uh, raw materials allow, us to allow, allow you to make a great brand. On top of that, you put uh, brewing heritage. You know, we've got great brewers down there. We've got third-generation brewers, which is fascinating. I think probably one of the breweries in the world that's got the most third-generation, maybe some of the American breweries, but certainly a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of brewing provenance that comes out of just the people and, and great products. So we, yeah, it was quite simple. Now, let's put all that together. Let's tell people where we come from. Let's stay very true to to what how good beer is made. Uh, and let's start um, using those different styles. And I think the styles are quite an important, you know, discussion around category because I think part of the problem um, as craft starts to emerge in Australia, it's still it's still quite um, uh, confusing, uh, if you like, um, because because everything gets lumped into craft. There doesn't really seem to be a way to navigate the beer categories, and something like Cascade does it quite nicely, going from from the lager right through to the stout. You know, so it's sort of an entry level, if you like, entry level tasting. Uh, product right through to a more challenging, more interesting, more flavoursome type mm-hmm. product, um, and and that's what Cascade is, you know, plain and simple. It's it's not, um, it shouldn't be difficult to dissect it, and it should be one of those beers that you enjoy and you and you're able to say, you know, this comes from from great people, provenance and and uh, and product. We might just take a quick detour there because you you did raise a point about how craft can be hard to negotiate, and I, I think craft is one of those things that. Everyone can have their own little view, but ultimately it's the consumer buying beer at the end that has their view about um, what craft is. Mm. And I've, not, I've noted recently that, uh, for example, Stella Artois <coughs> is running a uh, big campaign at the moment, originally crafted for Christmas, um, which is an odd choice of uh, words um, for a brand like that. And uh, even when CB relaunched Carlton Cold as a mid-strength in the last uh, week or two, it's got a line in there, crafted at um, whatever degrees or the process that's crafted it's you know not brewed it's things it seems to be something you know one of those touchstone phrases like uh, eco or green or yeah, you know, yeah, having yeah, a yeah. green bottle um, yeah, yeah. that you can make uh, it, it, it's almost like subliminal marketing if, if you throw that word in there you're taking some of the emotional impact of what people see as craft um, where you put in a green bottle they start thinking you don't have to make any claim about it being eco-friendly mm, mm. but the consumer projects their own hopes onto it yeah. Yeah, how much blame do big multinational brewers it's not a and this isn't something that is looking at the quality of beer or the, the politics or anything like that but you know 
isn't one of the um, games of marketing to sort of muddy those waters a little bit and you know, so you can play in that pond as well for all of your brands, not just the uh, Matilda Bays of the world? Well, look, it's a, I'm sure we'll get back to, to cold separately within the interview, so we'll tell about your, your reference to craft, which is absolutely not intentional or intended to try and put it into that space at all. Um, but you know, if you come back to craft, part of the problem I think in, in Australia, and then I'll try and answer your, your last question there, part of the problem I think in, in Australia, we've almost got to a, a model that is lager and non-lager. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you ask people, and, and your point is right, you know, craft becomes a little bit like culture. You know, It kind of gets used interchangeably and nobody really knows what it was. And, and if you had a magic wand, I'd actually like to throw a craft the name out the window and bring in different styles of beer so that we can have a navigation that makes more sense. You know, so if you think about it, starting with lagers, then you go to ales, and then you go to wheats, and then you go to kind of stouts. You know, mm-hmm. and if you if you've got a um, if you've got a, a beer category that's better laid out, then I think it'll be better for the consumers in the long run. So, um, so you know, what is craft? Where does craft stop and start? You know, in bl- in blind tasting, if you take some of the, I mean, firstly, a really interesting stat is that um, five of the brands, single brands in the craft category, make up about seventy percent of the volume. Mm-hmm. And if you if you have a look at those brands and you look at them on a spider diagram and have a look at their, they are not particularly challenging crafts. You know, they are, you know, they're definitely kind of the entry level crafts. And and so I think largely Australians are, are seeing craft, but still drinking quite close to lager. Mm. You know, so they like the aromatics, they like the extra nose on it, and like a little bit more flavour. But it's it's certainly not too far along that spectrum. Oh, very much, but I guess craft. You know, there's a qualitative thing, and uh, you know, uh, there is a percentage, uh, a fairly small percentage of the uh, beer drinker that sees craft as being the extreme IPAs, and they're very experiment, experimental and experiential drinkers. Um, yes. Yep. And whereas a lot of people don't necessarily want to change vastly what they drink, but it's the stone and woods, it's the uh, fat yaks, it's uh, those sorts of gold light golden ales that give them the, the characters that you, you raised. Yep. But also a big part of marketing is. The emotional pull, um, and BB is a great example of that. The emotional pull that it has, and uh, you know, you, you see farmers markets, for example. And if if you gave people a blind tasting of two apples, one from Woolworths and one from farmers market, they probably wouldn't tell the difference. Yeah. But yet people choose to go to buy the more expensive, sometimes not as good quality apple from the farmers markets because it's a political decision, it's yep. an emotional decision. Yeah. And when you bring in the perceptional characteristics of that product they feel better and they enjoy it more for that reason. And craft, uh, you know, undoubtedly Matilda Bay makes some of the best quality craft beers and you've been recognised uh, at the ARBAs, but is, it doesn't there come a point where part of the marketer's job is to try and play in the same pool as the small independent guys um, and have that emotional pull of the small independent guys? While still having all the volumes and the benefits of being the uh, you know, the, the largest brewery in Australia, yeah, you know, I'm not certain it's a it's a it's a big guy small guy thing. You know, I think at the end of the day, the consumer's got to win over what the consumer wants to drink. Mm-hmm. I think you know fundamentally, one of the big differences between a big brewer and a small craft brewer will be consistency. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, part of what we do is we try and brew. Uh, beers exactly the same each time to spec and have a lot of money invested in, in, in equipment and processes to be able to do that. And part of the mystique and the beauty of the smaller craft brewers is they don't always get it exactly perfect and you get some good batches and some bad batches, you know, and, and, and that sort of thing. And I think there's space for both of those people in the industry. Um, so for me, it's, uh, as I said, fundamentally, I don't think it's about big and small. I think it's about 
about a consumer being able to navigate the category and understand what they're looking for, what they like. But I, I guess that's my point because sometimes they are looking. And I, just this week, I got a media release from a local tourism PR person who wanted to spruik the new craft beer bar. You know, I think it's very exciting that tourism bodies are jumping on craft beer bars as a source of tourism and she wrote gushingly about how this new craft beer has got no line or CUB beers and you've got to try this new beer called Itchy Green Pants and you know that's uh, to, to me highlights in, in a nutshell um, that there are people who see value in drinking um, buying from a farmer's market and uh, you know if you told them that None of, the, none of the people here are farmers, they've actually just gone out to the local uh, wholesalers and bought that day. They would feel cheated and there is increasingly a segment of the market that feels cheated when they find out that Peroni is no longer brewed in Italy and uh, you, know, you, you can explain them the quality differences of that um, and how it doesn't really matter. But um, yeah. but, it's, but, but the, the real point I'm trying to make is it's consumer choice at the end of the day. So should a consumer be, if somebody says Itchy Green Pants is a great brand and I'm really enjoying it, for me that's the most important thing. You know, this is a, because we're, we're not all the same, we don't all like the same liquids. Mm-hmm. I mean, for me the acid test is when I put that in my mouth, does it say drink some more and does it say I'm going to go back and look for that? Whether or not it's made by one of the big brewers or a small brewer, you know, for me is very much a secondary thing. If it's a secondary thing in terms of the consumer, then so be it. They should be able to trace it back. Mm-hmm. You shouldn't have the camouflages in it. But you know, Itchy Green Pants is very proudly part of Matilda Bay, which that, is, that very, one, and it is which very, very proudly so part of CUB, and that's not something that we hide or try and deny. And, 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 and I wasn't camouflage. suggesting that in, yeah. in, in that case um, you, you were, because Matilda Bay is very clearly, and has been for a long time, part of the uh, CUB stable. But to me it was illustrating that even where something is so clearly CUB, people... Don't identify it as a core CUB brand, but it it, it did um, it, it does raise something else that uh, I've banged the gong about uh, this year, and that was the Byron Bay Lager, where we talked about you know if it matters to people, they they should be able to uh, determine, and that was fundamentally the the point that I was making um, when I wrote about uh, Byron Bay Lager, which was a brand that CUB licensed at the start of the year, um, but yet nowhere you couldn't find out anywhere um, that it was a brand that was um, brewed by CUB, being distributed, marketed. Um, you know the communications around it were CUB. Um, I did, did say it was brewed uh, brewed at Warnerville. They didn't say it was brewed at uh, Byron Bay. If you look at the label, uh, no, it says it was brewed in New South Wales. Brewed under license in New South Wales, but that's but not Byron, that's well, not Byron Bay. Well, Byron Bay is in New South Wales, and it had a map of Byron Bay showing where the brewery was, mm. where Byron Bay Brewery was on the carton. So, no, from, uh, from legally, um, you, you're perfectly correct. It doesn't say anywhere. Mm. But isn't that the careful construct of the way that the all of the marketing was that it's a Byron Bay brewery, the brewery is in Byron Bay, it's brewed in New South Wales. Wasn't that a way of um, hiding the fact that it was actually brewed by CUB? And, uh, you know, wolf in sheep's clothing is very pejorative, but wasn't that effectively the case? It, it wasn't, you know, they dissecting it afterwards, that's a conclusion you may come to. And, and, and because of 
because of the highlight that it's had, I have dug quite a lot deeper into this, and and that was never the, that was never the intention. That isn't the intention, you know. And you do get a lot of brands, uh, you know, some of the Matilda Bay brands are simply too big for the original Matilda Bay Brewery. I mean, the original Matilda Bay Brewery was in yep. WA's, you know. So some of those brands are brewed in other brands, you know, mm. in other breweries. Uh, Malt shovel, you know, some of those brands are brewed in other breweries. Very that's, much. that's what it happens. I think you've got to look at it from the other way, to be honest. I mean, what stops a lot of the craft brewers, uh, you know, the smaller craft brewers. Um, getting any bigger or being more successful are things like production capability and distribution capability and uh, I would again still argue from the liquid backwards you know if, mm. if the liquid is appealing to a consumer and you want to make it available um, uh, you know, unless there's deceiving advertising involved that says you know you think that it's all coming from that particular little brewery and, and you're deceived otherwise well, and, and I'd actually argue that that was the case and, and I did argue fairly passionately that that was the case and uh, intention yeah. I, I appreciate that yeah. there was no intent no there, um, there were absolutely no but intent but under the trade so. practice or under the uh, sort of uh, advertising standards intention isn't an issue if the average consumer um, and I, I recorded going into uh, a number of bottle shops and having the sales reps pointing to the carton when I asked where is it brewed mm. they pointed to the carton and treated me as if I was stupid because yeah. it's got a big map of Byron Bay and they're saying the brewery's here yeah. so I think you know I, I, I really think you really need to be blind to uh, or you know at, at some level um, blind to the perception that is created deliberately or otherwise in the consumer's mind so let, let, let's work through let's work through all those going forward I mean, mm-hmm. again you can't manage yep. backwards you can you can only manage forward mm-hmm. you know there are many many brands um, in this country largely craft brands mm-hmm. that sort of have an element of provenance within their marketing that are manufactured by contract brewers for yes. them, let's say. And, and you know, so, so let me let me say at the outset that if Byron Bay is guilty and it may well be guilty by um, uh, or might be found, found guilty unintentionally as, mm-hmm. I, as I've indicated and what have you then it brings into question a significant number of brands and in fact the whole category. So I've always said mm-hmm. that I think that the ACCC um, if they are genuinely protecting the consumer rather than go after a single brand should say is this a practice this is something we've got to look at across the practice of the entire craft industry because many, many brands are not made out of uh, the small back of the restaurant that they that they are they often undoubtedly. Often and I've, I've had the same conversation. I've had the same conversation with Chuck Hahn, and in fact, um, I'm down in Melbourne today to have this conversation because I was down at Little Creatures yesterday and uh, oh, right, had a 50-minute yeah. car ride um, from the airport to uh, Geelong yesterday, in which Chuck and I. Uh, Discuss this issue very strongly, yeah. um, and um, same with uh, Mountain Goat and some of those other breweries that yeah. are, are made independent distillers. And, uh, yeah. um, and, th- and, th- and this isn't an issue that I'm sort of uh, no, no, no. up CV about exclusively, but it seemed to be for me the lower step because uh, of of a trend. And when you read um, annual reports from companies, and I highlighted a lot of the statements that Graham uh, Mackay had made. Um, uh, precisely about this issue if let people know let the consumer decide which is if it doesn't matter to them then the beer will do very well because it is about the liquid but this seemed to be a case where great links had, got, had been gone to to eat, to hide and even and one of the things I've been uh, I'd lost friends about was publishing the, the, the stream of communication between uh, myself and the PR agency um, that was involved because 
it was like extracting teeth that CUB was involved um, to them um, from them. But but again, you know, Matt, we can only manage Ford. So you know, making beer, making friends is you know is part mm-hmm. of who we are. So that's a good place to start. Secondly, I mean, I'll unequivocally say we believe in the quality of the liquid mm-hmm. and the quality of the brands, and we would never intentionally mislead. And and for me, quite the contrary, as per what Graham Mackay was saying, you know, we think that the consumer has a right to the information so they can make their choice. Having said that, I also think you've got to balance that with education. So, for example, if you take something like some of the international brands, you know, where people might start out and say um, Grolsch is brewed in, in Australia, therefore it's different. You know, mm-hmm. I think you need education to know that it's brewed under license, which mm-hmm. means that you know each quarter we get uh, an audit um, from from the Grolsch brewers. Every month we send a case of the beer, which is put up against an international taste panel against where Grolsch is produced the rest of the world. And we can deliver without any shadow of doubt consistency mm-hmm. against those brands. You know, so it's up for us. To, again, of course, the consumer can vote with their, you know, with their throat and with their dollars. There's no question about that. But at the end of the day, in a blind taste, you should not be able to discern the difference and um, between, uh, you know, locally. I, 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 I agree fully about that. One of the things that uh, I, I do in all of my tastings is when people say Peroni is not as good because it's brewed over here these days. Um, I tell them to buy a bottle of two bottles of Peroni fresh from the, the bottle shop put one in their fridge and one in their car for four weeks and then taste them and they'll taste different. Um, We're on your page. <laughs> yeah, and that's that's exactly right. And if it, if it matters to you that's imported, then you know, you're actually often putting up with a less of the product. And I agree with that. But on all of the bottles, brewed and bottled in Australia by CUB, um, you know, even when it's under licence, that with the Byron Bay Lager, CUB, you couldn't find anywhere CUB's uh, fingerprints on it, or you had to actually go looking. Um, okay. Would would you do it the same way again, or Let, let's see how it plays out? You know, would be the answer. Um, you know, I think I think no. Now knowing that there is a level of concern. You know that's been discussed and debated mm-hmm. uh, around the whole thing. We'd we'd go in with I think more knowledge uh, mm-hmm. the next time around, and and we would we would certainly be be con- very considerate. Not to say they weren't at the time, or and I don't know whether a conscious decision was made one way or another. But certainly going forward, we'll be very conscious of that. We have we are we are very proud of being CUB. We don't think that big is bad, mm. and in fact, in some cases, we think big can be very very good. Uh, and we think that with um, you know small brands like that that simply need a bigger production facility, as long as you can deliver the same liquid on the lips to the consumer, then that's the right way to go. And you certainly won't have uh, any uh, disagreement here. And uh, that, that's why I always see that there's a little bit of a disconnect between the statement that um, we're proud and um, some of the, the efforts that seem to be gone to. But I, and, and I take your point, and uh, in fact... It can be argued that the uh, a company like CUB has a much better capacity to manage the quality of uh, their beers than a small brewery that's outsourcing to a, uh, a contract brewery where they don't have the same sort of control over the brewing process that you guys have. Yeah. Um, can I also make a point of that, though, Matt, because I think it's it's a very interesting point. For, for me... Um, all of us make up the beer industry, mm. you know, and uh, be it, uh, be it Lion Nathan, uh, Cooper's, CUB, or, you know, at the other end of the spectrum, some of the small, uh, small brewers. And I think the more we can kind of work together to grow the industry, you know, to make the beer category more exciting, more appealing, the better. You know, mm. I, I get worried when we squabble amongst ourselves, as I said to... Uh, 
you know, to the other industry players, what we really want to do is rise, is, is fight on a rising tide. You know, mm. we want a healthy category. The rising tide with, lives <coughs> with, Yeah, with healthy brands. And between the two of those things, they, they end up with a better business for us and they end up with a better result for the consumer. And that's really where we've got to head as an industry. But and from a marketed, um, isn't some sort of clarity... You know, in, in making a point that these products are you know, fighting on the quality because we are a big brewery, we uh, have these quality controls and these consistency. Um, is, isn't that something? Isn't isn't that one of your strengths? And one of the points I made during the uh, the Byron Bay um, thing is that brand does matter. And as a as a person who lives his life in brand, you know that that matters. And uh, for example, a brewery like Stone and Wood, they could have been much much bigger. They've had continuing uh, supply problems since they started because they haven't go on the contract route and that is a very important part of their brand. Um, when they launch their second brewery, when they expanded brewery, they're going to change their branding to brewed in the Northern Rivers because they can no longer say brewed in Byron Bay but it doesn't dilute the brand at all. Uh, it takes theirs, uh, you know, it sort of extends theirs. Sorry guys. <laughs> we're going to run out of time are we? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, a brand such as, and I've had this discussion with uh, the guys from Mountain Goat, you know, and they yeah. say, look, we don't hide the fact that we contract brew, we just don't advertise. I said, well, you know, that does put you, you know, it does dilute the brand somewhat um, when people um, mm-hmm. come to it like that. Do, do, you, do you agree that there is, a, that the consumers do have an expectation, um, or that at a consumer level, um, not at a liquid level or at a, you know, at a business level, but at a consumer level, if they have an expectation that something is a state of being that eggs are free range and that free range means that they actually get to go outside, that they're disappointed if free range means that chickens can't actually spread their wings. And you know, is, is the consumer's perception a right way to approach it? Oh, look, I think it's a, it's a difficult question to answer. I mean, in your case of free range, I mean, you know, and I buy free range eggs, I absolutely expect them to be laid you know, by uh, by chickens that are mm. that are roaming around and, and scratching. So you know, I think I, I think there has to be a, an element of truth, but there's also an element of practicality in that. Yes. You know, for for breweries to grow, they've got to make commercial decisions, and it cannot. You know, sometimes you can't. Uh, sometimes you simply can't uh, just extend uh, within within the same brewing facility, etc. And you, you you know, you've got to have economies of scale and all sorts of things. So I think there's a practical element that gets put on it. Bottom line, I keep going back as a consumer can't be deceived. I mean, you cannot say something that is deceiving to the consumer. Sometimes you maybe just don't talk it up quite as much, you know. I mean, you don't necessarily need to, you know, publish the fact fully that, you know, you now brewed in a different facility if it's not part of your overall brand and if you can still deliver the same liquid to, to people, you know. I mean, for me, that's still the most important critical part. Could have brewed and bottled by CUB on, on Byron Bay label, for example, dispelled any notions? Yeah, brewed and bottled in you know at, at the Warnervale under license by Byron Bay or something of that nature because that you know that's the reality. I yeah. mean, so I think we're probably in violent agreement at the end of the day. Yeah. You know, I think uh, I think the important thing with Byron Bay is Barry was intimately involved. He was involved with the recipe. We didn't change anything. You know, he was intimately involved. He just said, "Look, guys, I can't bottle. You know, I yeah. don't have the facility. People are demanding they want bottles of beer. I can give them kegs out of my facility here, but actually, if I'm going to grow, I need." 
kegs than I need bottles and, and, and you, you're in the business of branding and you've got a good footprint and isn't there something in that and that's how we struck the deal yeah. Peter, thank you very much we've uh, sort of come out of time people are waiting to use the conference room so thank you for being so generous in your time it's great to be talking to CUB again Th- Thanks Matt, it's fantastic and you know let me just reiterate that I think um, as we work on a healthy category having people like yourself who are as passionate about the beer and the brews as we are is, is such a fundamentally important thing you definitely have an open door here um, I've said it time and time again to use it with beer as uh, completely transparent with you and it's just really encouraging to have somebody that loves uh, beer as much as we do. We might have to hit you up for some sponsorship dollars with an approach like that. Sounds Peter, good. great to sit down and chat. Um, thank you for your time and uh, hope, hopefully we'll get to have a beer one day soon rather than just chat. I look forward to that. Thanks, man. Thanks, man. Okay, Prof, there we go. Um, interesting. He's Very good interesting. Guy. Yeah, no, he's a good guy, and, and all, all credit to him for uh, um, not having any topics off, uh, you know, off the table. He was willing to talk to everything, um, you know, as you got from my repeated questioning, as I tend to do when I don't like the answer. Um, he may not have answered them the way that I wanted, but you get to hear him, and you get to hear it in his own voice rather than the uh, the, the highly uh, polished uh, media release that we normally hear. So, um, exactly. thanks and, very and much. That in, and that in itself is... Is an answer. Oh, that is, and, and look, you know, I as I always said, you know, you, you show great confidence in your product if you're willing to have people question it and you know take them on and answer it, and uh, you know, they really do um, believe that what they're doing is uh, good for beer. And uh, when you look at how they've gone with uh, VB, you know, I've I've, I've criticised them for the way they turned it around, the way they tried to spin it. I certainly won't criticise them for the beer. VB is tasting. Uh, better than I've ever tasted it. Crown Lager the same, and they're doing some great things uh, with craft beer. So, uh, you know, good luck to them uh, for all of that. And, Peter, thank you uh, for coming on Radio Brews News. Pete, Prof uh, uh, Pilsner Mitchum, thank you for coming on Radio Brews News. I look forward to, uh, um, inverted commas, hopefully we mean it this time, speaking to you more regularly, Prof. Thank you. Let's see you, Matt.